December 9th, 1965, a young man who was frustrated and in despair because the the trimmings and wrappings of a commercialized Christmas brought him no joy. And he threw up his hands and he says, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? To which his animated friend Linus responds, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And he brings his blanket and he walks out on stage at their rehearsal and he says, lights, please. And he proceeds to tell the Christmas story directly word from word from Luke chapter two, just like you heard our children do today. And for the first time in television history, an animated character read scripture on TV and there were people who didn't like it. CBS, who aired it, even though half the people who were tuned into anything that night in America watched They did not want that to happen. They thought it was too much of a divided world to have scripture, especially those scriptures read. And yet read, they were. They read, they were. And they continued to be read year after year after year. And for many of us, Christmas wasn't Christmas season until we watched a Charlie Brown Christmas. Christmas just didn't seem to be there yet. And Back in the day, without streaming and all of that, we had to like watch the TV guide, remember, to find out when it would be on. And if we missed it, we missed it. It didn't play again. You couldn't just stream it at will. What Christmas is all about. And we live in this world full of trappings. And there's nothing wrong with us celebrating. There's nothing wrong with us giving gifts and celebrating Christmas. But if we remove Christ from the center of that Christmas, we will be just as distraught as Charlie Brown and throw up our hands and say, what is all this about? Well, this morning, I have one purpose, and that is to introduce you to some of the ways that Jesus, born in a manger, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That Jesus, not just a special teacher or a good prophet, but the Son of God incarnate come to earth to save his people. That Jesus. The Old Testament drips with predictions and um, pictures and marks of Jesus And those of you who are around here regularly know that we started a series in Isaiah back in February. And we've had, this is the 35th sermon out of that series. And I debated on whether going to a typical Christmas text for Christmas Day. But my text for Christmas is Isaiah 27. Said no one ever until today. Because Isaiah 27 gives us a grand picture of what God accomplished in Christ according to the promises of the Old Testament. And the promises of the Old Testament all point forward to him. This idea that the Old Testament is full of just law and an angry God and the New Testament is full of Jesus, the one who loves, is completely unfounded from the pages of Scripture. And in Chapters 24, 25, 26, and 27 in Isaiah, we see this wonderful picture of future days of what God intends to do in Christ for his people. And we see this, what we call an already and not yet fulfillment, that we have seen Christ come 
as a baby born in the major. That, that, that picture we have right now in the Christmas season. But we also have one eye toward the future when he will return again in power and glory and consummate his kingdom and bring his people with him into the new heaven and new earth. But there's also the promise of judgment for those who are outside of Christ. All of that is part of the Christmas message. And Isaiah 27 brings it to us beautifully. And so what we'll do this morning is we'll look briefly at Isaiah 27. For those of us who have been around through these, these, this series of sermons, we are going to see the same kind of things talked about again. But we are also going to see them as they're fulfilled in Christ. So we get the picture of this babe in a manger comes as the son of God to die so that we might have life. And that is all fulfilled in Christ from Isaiah 27. So turn to Isaiah 27 and stand. I'm just going to read the first, or the verses two through six this morning. We'll look at all of the chapter, but I'm just going to read two through six. If you remember, we covered verse one last week um, of chapter 27. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, Yahweh, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or... Let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So in Isaiah 27, verses 2 through 17, we'll go all the way through. We observe five demonstrations of Yahweh's redemptive power. Five demonstrations of Yahweh's redemptive power. We'll move through this fairly quickly, and then we will see five fulfillments in Christ of Yahweh's redemptive power from the New Testament. Now, we've read in chapter 27. I want you to keep your finger there and turn back to chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. We just read about this vineyard, this ultimate vineyard that Yahweh himself, God himself will tend to and protect and its fruitfulness. But remember in Isaiah, we have already seen a picture of the vineyard, what God expected. God planted and took care of the vineyard and he expected fruit, good fruit. But instead, you remember what he got? Stink fruit, bad fruit. And so we need, we need to remember and recall Isaiah chapter 5 before we can understand how beautiful Isaiah 27 is. Just start in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved, Isaiah says, my love song concerning his vineyard. Now this vineyard is a picture of Israel. Just keep that in your mind. This is, this is a poetic way of describing what God intended for his chosen people, Israel. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. 
He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. Now get the picture here. God has done all this work providing for Israel, providing for hedging them in, protecting them, and he expected fruit. And that fruit, we'll see that fruit developed and talked about a little later, but he's expecting righteousness and justice from them. That's what he's expecting. And yet Israel, as so often the case, fails in that. Look at the last phrase of verse 2. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, literally stinking things, rotten fruit. Verse 3, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, O men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes, stinking things? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed or, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God did the work for Israel, and yet they were disobedient to him. And God says that he will bring armies against them. And that's what happens in biblical history. The Assyrians come against the northern kingdom. The Babylonians come against the southern kingdom. Take them both into captivity. All God's judgment on his people slash discipline on his people. Because at the same time God is working out judgment, he's working out salvation. We've seen that so often in, in Isaiah. We see that there's judgment, but there's hope. There's judgment, but there's hope. There's always the picture of a remnant. And back in chapter 27, which is where I want you to turn, back where we started, we're going to see now that God is acting in a different way toward his people. And his people now have expanded. They're not just the nation of Israel. They're all the nations of the earth. Anyone from any tribe, tongue, people, or nation who will turn and trust in God, who will turn and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Anyone who does that, come for God's protection in Christ, will be granted life, will be granted fruit. Look back at 27, verse 2. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, not, not a vineyard sting with, filled with stink fruit, but a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. Now, we know in 24, 5, 6, and 7, we have seen the contrast between the two cities, the city of God and the city of man, and oftentimes their songs. So this is a song of the city of God, those who are the redeemed. Sing of this vineyard. I, the Lord, and anytime you see in your Bibles, Lord with all caps, it's referring to that phrase that God's covenant name for his people, Yahweh. I, Yahweh, am its keeper. Now, he was the planter and keeper of the vineyard in chapter 5 as well, but there's a difference in this. Chapter 5 ended up being a vineyard of judgment. Chapter 27 gives us the future look at a vineyard of grace. 
I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it. Remember what he did for the first one in judgment in chapter five? He told the rain not to rain upon it because they were unfruitful. And he put his judgment upon them. But now remember, always there is a picture of a remnant. Always God is, has a remnant to carry on his people. And the same thing is true in Israel. Paul tells us in several places in, in Romans in chapter 2 and in chapter 9 that not all Israel is true Israel. That there, when we talk about the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, that there were, there were individuals in that nation who were, did not have circumcised hearts, the way the Bible talks about faith in Yahweh. They lived according to their own faith. They lived according to their own strength. They may have been Israelite by birth, but they were not Israelite spiritually. Those who were Israelite spiritually were the ones who turned to Yahweh and obey him. They were the remnant that God redeemed and brought back into the land. So here in verse 3, I, every moment I water it, moment by moment, it has everything it needs to be nourished, Let, lest anyone punish it. Now, in the first vineyard, he was calling the Assyrians to come to the northern kingdom. He will, will call, in, in the history of Isaiah, Babylon has yet to come against the southern kingdom. He will call Babylon against the southern kingdom, but in this garden, there will be no one punish it. And that's the poetic language to say, no one's going to punish the vineyard because I water it. And we take that in its meaning to mean no one's going to come at my people because I preserve them. The second half of verse 3, I keep it night and day. There's never a moment Yahweh is not tending to his vineyard. And he says, I have no wrath. Now, that's different than chapter 5 because God came against his disobedient people with his wrath. Now, we need to understand this concept. On, the, on Christmas Day, Pastor, why are you talking about wrath? Why are you talking about the wrath of God? Is God really a wrathful God? If God was not wrathful, he would not be God and Christ would not have needed to come. So if we're going to celebrate Christ coming, we are celebrating the full character of God. And he says that I will not be partner to sin. And if you, any human being, decide to stand on your own strength and your own faith and your own power, then my wrath will come upon you in the last day. And you notice that in chapter 27, verse 2, we started out in that day. So in that day is talking about the day that Christ returns. In that day is the day that Christ returns and no one who is outside of Christ, no one who, is, who has not placed their faith and trust in Christ and repented of their own sin, their own works, no one will be redeemed by him in that day. Now, the glorious thing about that is before that day happened, Jesus came. And Jesus has not returned again yet. So the good news for us is if we have not yet done that, then this is the opportunity we have to repent and put our faith and trust in Christ because this is the vineyard he prepares. His people, his saved, redeemed, Christ-filled, blood-bought people. So in this vineyard, he has no wrath. And we'll come back to that. But look at the second phrase in verse 4. He laments. There's some different viewpoints on the, on the grammar here of whether he's lamenting that he doesn't have any thorns or briars to battle or whether he's making a different statement. But the idea is clear, isn't it? In the first vineyard that was disobedient to him, he allowed briars and thorns to rise up against the vineyard and overtake it. And here he says, my vineyard is so well kept. I wish I had somebody to battle. 
but I don't. If I did, look what he says. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them and would burn them up together. Anybody who's an enemy of God's people is an enemy of God. And he will take care of them. He will deal with them on the last day. Or, verse 5, let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. So you see the grace that comes in. If there were people that came against me, and I know they come against me because they come against my people, they have two options. Deal with me and my wrath or come to me and receive my protection. Lay hold of my protection. And then that phrase is repeated. It's really let him, let him make peace with me. Peace let him make with me. It switches the word order in the original and it emphasizes both sides of that. So that's the question before us today. Will you stand before God in his wrath or will you stand before God in his protection? He offers peace to you today. He offers peace. Come to him for peace and receive his blessing. And what it requires is repentance. And we'll see as we move through chapter 27, repentance is still missing in the city of God. Is repentance still missing in your life? And you may say, well, Pastor Rob, I already know Jesus. I I walked the aisle in VBS when I was four. I already know him. Have you repented? And if you're claiming Christ, here's the question. Are you still repenting? Because it's a mark of a believer to constantly repent of sin and trust in Christ. We don't just come to Christ and say, hey, I think I like your life better than mine. We come to Christ and say, I repent of my sin. I repent of my faith so that I might be in you, that I might receive all of your blessing to me. That's what's being offered right here in the perfect garden that Christ is coming to prepare. Look at verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots. That's it. That's when we, we know that in Isaiah, we see Jacob and Israel and Judah and Samaria. We see these different names for the northern and southern kingdom. Sometimes they're dealing with the, the physical kingdom. Sometimes they're dealing with the spiritual people in those kingdoms. Sometimes it's a poetic way of saying the same thing in two different ways. So here we have the perfect picture in the days to come. And I'll tell you, that was when Christ came. That's the day we're talking about here. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth fruits or put forth shoots. You see that there's root and then there's fruit. That's a very important biblical picture, isn't it? There's always a root that's planted. If the root is good, the fruit will be good. When our root is Christ, our fruit is good. And that's what verse six says. And fill the whole world with fruit. Now, this takes us back to Genesis chapter 12, doesn't it? That promise to Abraham where God said that he would raise Abraham up and make a name for him. And he says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. And he will make his seed numerous. But then Paul, Paul, the beautiful thing that Paul does in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, is tell us that that seed is a singular seed. It's not plural. There's a physical seed of Abraham, and there's a spiritual seed of Abraham. And the physical seed of Abraham are the one that they may not have a spiritual bone in their body. They meet the Lord's judgment. But there is one who comes who is from the physical lineage, but he is also the promised seed. And Paul tells us that's Jesus Christ himself. And so when Christ comes, 
Christ is the one who comes to earth and lives that perfect life that I've emphasized so much this morning. And he dies on a cross. God raises him from the dead and he's now seated and actively ruling at the right hand of the Father. That Jesus Christ, he comes to the face of the earth so that everyone from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who repent of their sin and trust to him, come and trust in him, they will be that spiritual fruit. And look at what it says in verse 6. And fill the whole world, not just Israel. Fill the whole world with fruit. Because Christ is the root that produces the fruit of salvation. And we have to make sure that we're connected to that root. Well, this first demonstration of Yahweh's redemptive power is where I wanted to spend most of our time this morning as it, it is the antithesis of chapter 5, and it's what we're looking for. Yahweh keeps his people as a pleasant, fruitful vineyard. But look at the second um, demonstration of Yahweh's redemptive power. Yahweh disciplines his people rather than destroys them, and they are fruitful. Look at verse 7. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Now, that, here's, here's the historical setting for that question. The question is, we know that God, in the discipline of his children, he raises up nations against them. And in, in, the, in the time of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, two powerhouse nations God uses to come against his people and carry them into captivity. And so that's, he, what he's asking is, have, was Assyria punished in the same way, or was Judah, was, were my people, Judah, Jerusalem, punished in the same way that Assyria was? The people who came and did my bidding to judge my people, did they meet the same end? And the answer is no. Because God promised to destroy those people because they did not bow the knee to Yahweh. But for his people, look at the difference here in verse 8. Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. So this is God contending with his people by taking them into exile. And he used these rogue enemy nations to do so. But he removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. The east wind is a way to talk about those, those nations that come from the east to do God's bidding. Therefore, by this, by that exile, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. Atoned for. That, 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 that wonderful, majestic work of God where he takes care of the people's sins in a way that they are not held against them. He atones for, and Christ atones for those sins through the shedding of his blood. And there's another thing. You're talking about a bloody Jesus on a cross. Is that what you're talking about on Christmas? Yes, because that's why he was born in a manger. The sole reason he was born is to live that perfect life so he could die in place of the people that God intends to redeem. That's the gospel to us. That's what Christ accomplishes when he dies on the cross. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No asherim or incense altars remain standing. So this doesn't mean that just by virtue of their exile, their sins are atoned for. It means that those who are followers of Yahweh, because of the exile, their faith is restored. Those who are the remnant, their faith is restored in God. Who is their salvation? 
And when they're taken in into that exile and God sends them back, releases the remnant back into the nation, he's releasing people who are true Israelites. And how do we know it? They put all of their sacrifice, their, uh, their um, idol worship aside. They tear down all the places that they would worship idols instead of the one true God. That's the fruit. And that's the fruit for us. If we are those people who have been redeemed by Christ, then the fruit that's produced in us, one of the fruits that's produced in us is we worship only Christ and nothing else. We don't worship ourselves. We don't worship our family. We don't worship our jobs or our incomes or our 401ks or our status or our own strength or all the gifting that God has given us. We don't worship the blessings that he gives us. We worship the giver of the blessings. And that's the same thing that would mark Israel. So God disciplines his people rather than destroys them, and they are fruitful. The fruit being they worship Yahweh, and they tear down their idols. The third demonstration of Yahweh's redemptive power, Yahweh destroys his enemies as he saves his people. Look at verse 10 and 11. For the fortified city... That's the city of man. That's, that's all the nations and their inhabitants who, are, who by all of their, their work and their effort and their governments and everything that they do, they're enemies of God. The fortified city is solitary. And it's really a way of saying they think they're fortified, but you can't fortify sin against God who is all-powerful. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry and they are broken, women women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. So the creator God of the universe created us all for worship. And sin entered the world through Adam. And when sin entered the world through Adam, it entered all of us. We, we don't become sinners when we sin. We are born sinners. We are born as enemies of God. That's why Christ needed to come. So Christ was not born a sinner. He was born of a virgin. He was born righteous, and he remained righteous his entire life. And his righteousness is credited to our account. That's what happens when we put our faith and trust in him. The people in the fortified city would not repent. They, they lack discernment. They lack the discernment to be able to turn to the one who's offering protection that we mentioned earlier in the, in the perfect vineyard. They lacked that discernment. And the same thing happens to us. If we refuse to repent, if we refuse to turn away from our sin and turn to Christ, we will receive his wrath as well. And he will show us no favor, even though he is our creator. Even though we're all created in the image and likeness of God, we will receive no favor from him because his favor is bestowed through his son and only through his son. Well, the fourth demonstration of Yahweh's redemptive power is Yahweh saves every one of his people. Look at verse 12. In that day, now here we're moving back to the return of Christ, just to tip my hand where we're heading back in the day when Christ returns, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt... Now, that is a just way of talking about the promised land. That, that's the way Genesis 15, um, verse 18, talks about the promised land. So all of God's people in all of the place that God places them, 
Yahweh will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. One by one, he will redeem his people. One by one, he will take his, those who are not his people, who are enemies of his, and he will deal with them without favor. One by one. God is a marvelous individual God. No one comes to faith because of their family. No Israelite comes to faith because they're a, a Jew by, by birth. No one does that. It's one by one. You and your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the fifth demonstration of Yahweh's redemptive power occurs in verse 13. Yahweh gathers his people to worship him. And on that day, a great trumpet will be blown. Now, when we talk about a trumpet in scripture, we're talking about a major event. The trumpet blew on Mount Sinai when God visited his redeemed people and gave them the law. The trumpet will blow when Christ returns again. The trumpet will blow on judgment day. So we're beginning this picture here of when Christ returns. The great trumpet will blow, will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship Yahweh on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Now, for those of us who have been traversing through Isaiah, we know that when we talk about the holy mountain, it's not the place, it's the fact that God dwells there with his people. God dwells with his people in Jerusalem in the Old Testament. So when we see this, we're not saying we all have to go to Jerusalem. We're saying that we are going, what Isaiah is saying in this last verse is that the people will come where God dwells. That's That's the biblical way to talk in this time. So God gathers them from all over the place. He gathers them and he brings them. Look what it says. They were in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt. Now that's even larger um geographical area than just what the promised land was laid out. So we're talking about every tribe and tongue and people and nation that are coming. Salvation comes to those who will trust in Yahweh. And now the new covenant tells us that we're trusting in Yahweh because he sent his son. And what he does is he brings us to worship him. There is no other response for those who come to Christ than to worship the one true God. Our lives are an act of worship every moment of every day, not just when we gather here. We don't gather here on Sunday morning for a little while and go away and not worship again until next Sunday. We just come to worship him corporately, and then we go out and we worship him individually and with our families. We are a worshiping people when we are redeemed by our creator God. I want you to look back. I want you to look back at those, that little phrase, I have no wrath. There at the end of verse 3. We need to ask ourselves, why? Does God just capriciously turn on his wrath and turn off his wrath? Does he just decide, oh, today I'm going to be wrathful. Tomorrow I'm not going to be wrathful, but today I am, so look out. Is that what God does? The perfect character of God says that he is loving and wrathful perfectly all at once. He is gracious and long-suffering at the same time that he is holy and just. He is against sin at the same time that he is redeeming his people. The perfect character of God is not capricious. So we need to ask ourselves, why in this perfect vineyard does Isaiah tell us that God says, I have no wrath? And that's because by this, his son has come. And when Jesus comes... 
And we, we should be able to say it together by now. When he comes, born of a virgin, lives a perfect life, and dies a perfect death. In that perfection of his death, the wrath of God is being placed on him for all who would believe in him. And you say, well, why does that need to be? Because God is holy and just, and he must exercise his wrath against sin. We are grateful and thankful that he's also long-suffering, are we not? Because his long-suffering, according to Paul in Romans chapter 2, is intended to lead us to repentance. That same repentance that would cause us to turn to the God who is offering protection, to the God who is our salvation. It requires that repentance. And so God being long-suffering is the only reason that you and I, before we came to Christ, were not killed instantly. It's the only reason that you, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is the only reason that you are still breathing because God is long-suffering. But there will come a day where that will change. So today is the day of your salvation if you are outside of Christ. Why? Because the reason he has no wrath on that day is because he has sent his son. And on the cross, he placed his wrath for all who would believe in Christ. He placed his wrath upon him. And therefore, it's satisfied. There is no more wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have peace now. Peace is ours. Remember, we learned about that in the last chapter. We have peace now because we've been justified by faith in Christ, according to Romans chapter 5. So how do we get that? We see Christ coming all of through chapter 27. Everything that's mentioned here is ultimately fulfilled in Christ and offered to us only because Christ has come. So we, we hold Christ out to you this morning with great affection, but also knowing that if you reject him, that's the only way that you will be saved. The only way to receive the protection of Yahweh is to receive his son. So how is this all fulfilled in Christ? First of all, we saw that Yahweh keeps his people as a pleasant, fruitful vineyard. But we also see in the New Testament that Christ keeps his people as a pleasant, fruitful vineyard. Turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, very familiar and comforting words. Beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. You see how that, how that just flows right from Isaiah chapter 27? God is the one who tends his vineyard. He is the vine dresser, and Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 15. I am the vine. I am the true vine. My, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So in the vineyard of Yahweh, in Jesus' vineyard, there is still good fruit produced. And if there is no fruit produced, it is, it is taken away. It is cut out. The good fruit is pruned. And if you know anything about gardening, which I, I am not a gardener, but I know enough to know that if you prune something, it's going to come back stronger. I know when we go out to these knockout rose bushes we have in our front yard that takes over everything, I have to go back and cut it down to about that tall. And I have to do that because in a year, it's going to be this tall and giving me all its stickers and all of that when I try to trim it the next year. Pruning it brings life, and that's this picture that's given to us. Verse 3 in John 15, Already you were clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
abide in me and I in you. And there's that language of the New Testament. We are resting in Christ. We are abiding, living with him in us and us living according to what he commands. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So you want to be a fruit bearer? You must be connected to Christ. And it's his fruit that will be born in you. You could bear your own fruit, but it will burn on the day of judgment. It is the fruit of Christ in us that remains. Verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches, just in case there's any confusion. You're not the one who produces. I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. You're just a branch. And aren't we so grateful that we're just a branch? Because if it was up to me to prune, I would fail. If it was up to me to produce the fruit, I would fail. We're trusting in Christ who is the fruit producer because his father is the vine dresser and we are the vines. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. You see this, we're bearing fruit to bearing more fruit in verse two to bearing much fruit in verse five. This is a picture of the Christian life. We are constantly growing. We call it being sanctified. Sanctified merely means being conformed in the image and likeness of Christ. Conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. And we're doing that by bearing the fruit that he produces. It's a picture of the Christian life. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Isaiah 27, isn't it? This is what the Father does. If there were vines, if there were vines and briars in his vineyard, he would gather them up because they would be dead and fruitless, and he would burn them. But in the vineyard that we're talking about in Isaiah 27, there are no vines or branches. Remember, in, in Revelation, what do we know about the new heavens and new earth? No wickedness enters in. No one who is unrighteous, no one who is vile, no one who is a sinner enters in. The new earth, the new Jerusalem is the people of God who are connected with Christ. And that's what John 15 is preparing us for. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Skip down to verse 16. No, verse 8. Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now listen, this is important. You can have all the words in the world about being a Christian, but if you're not producing fruit, check that. If Christ is not producing fruit in you and it's not evident... If that is not happening, then you have no reason to say that you are Christ. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so pro- and so prove to be my disciples. Disciples are fruit bearers, walking in the good works that, Christ, that God prepared beforehand, according to Ephesians chapter 2. This is the mark of the Christian life. Isaiah 27 is fulfilled in Christ, who is the true vine. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. In other words, there's not going to be any dead branches from you cut off by the time the vineyard that Christ is the true vine in is established. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So Christ keeps his people as the pleasant, fruitful vineyard. But also, secondly, Yahweh disciplined his people rather than destroy them and they're fruitful. 
Because of Christ, God disciplines his people rather than destroys them and they are fruitful. This is the picture we have in Hebrews chapter 12 that we're not going to turn to this morning, but you can go there later, where the promise is made that God will discipline his people. And that is a good thing because what father does not discipline his own children? If a father did not discipline his children, he wouldn't love them, would he? I mean, if you don't discipline your own kids, then you're not loving them. You're setting them up for failure. And if we submit to the discipline of our fathers, who and, and that discipline sometimes is, is wicked, that discipline sometimes is not perfect, why would we not submit to the discipline of our heavenly father who is perfect? Because see, just like God dealt with the Israelites and he brought judgment upon those who were not spiritual Israelites, their hearts were not circumcised, just like he did that, but still provided for his people. We saw that in chapter 27. That is what happens with God in Christ toward us. We who are in Christ we expect the discipline of a loving father because that discipline produces Christ in us. It produces the fruit that Jesus says he will produce by being the one true vine. Well, the third redemptive act, Yahweh destroyed his enemies as he saves his people. This is the same thing. Christ destroys his enemies and as he saves his people. This is the picture we see in Revelation chapter 19, where Christ comes when he returns riding on that white horse, and he comes with all of his people dressed in white, in robes that were, that were um, cleansed in, the, in his own blood, and he comes to destroy all of his enemies. And we get a picture of that if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, it won't take us long here, but Matthew chapter 25, we get a picture of what is going to happen on that day, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, so there's, there's the sign telling us, this is when Jesus returns, Revelation 19. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations... He will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those blessed by his father are the ones who trusted in Christ himself for salvation. And how do they know that? Because they were fruit bearers. Look at the next verse. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. There was fruit. They acted like Christ. They loved justice and righteousness, and it was evident. But there's another side to this. At the same time, he's redeeming his people. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We see that in Revelation 20 and 21. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. 
Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer saying them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You did not bear righteous fruit. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In Christ, God is doing the same thing that he promises to do in that vineyard in Isaiah chapter 27. He promises to redeem his people and to come against all the wicked. And listen, that's, that's the only encouragement we have in this life is that God will deal with all sin. He will deal with all evil. If he doesn't do it now in our sight, he will do it on that day. And only the righteous will remain because they are in Christ. Fourth, Yahweh saves every one of his people. And Christ saves every one of his people because he was sent by God to do his will. We see this in John chapter 6. You can turn there if you want. I'm not going to be there long. But in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35, Jesus makes this wonderful claim. He's talking to the Pharisees here who are the enemies of Christ. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Remember, we read that already in John 15, didn't we? That God is the one who chose us in Christ. We didn't choose him. We came to Christ because God set his affections upon us. And all that are in that state, Jesus says, I will not lose one, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You want to be found in the ones that enter into the new heaven and new earth? You want to be found in that group? Then Christ's resurrection is sure because you are in Christ. And he promises he will lose none. None that the Father has given him will he lose. All will enter into their rest. If we want to be in that group, we must turn from our own sin and our own self-righteousness and trust in the Christ, who is the fulfillment of chapter 27 of Isaiah. Finally, Yahweh gathers his people to worship him, and Christ gathers his people to worship him. We see this wonderful picture in Revelation chapter 7 where on that day we see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who come together and they're worshiping. We see this heavenly vision in beginning in verse 9 of chapter 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God 
saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is what Jesus accomplishes. So today, the day that we celebrate the birth of, of one born in a manger, we are also celebrating the birth of the king who died for sin. Will you turn to him today? Will your Christmas present this year be salvation because you turn from your own sins and trust in this Christ who now you are responsible for? You are responsible to turn to him. And if you're already a believer, you are responsible to live as if you are and bear the fruit that the true vine bears through his people because that is the mark of a believer. That's what the meaning of Christmas is. That's who our Savior is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we find so much encouragement from a book written centuries ago, millennia ago. We are so grateful, Father, that you have redeemed us to be a people to give you worship and praise. We are grateful that you have brought us from death to life, that our resurrection is sure because you rose Christ from the dead. And if he was not raised, Father, we are all men, of all men to be most pitied, but he was. And so we are sure that on that day, he will come for us, his redeemed, not based on our righteousness, but based on his. So let it be so, Father, that no one leaves this place this morning without being in a saving relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this in, in his holy and precious name. Amen. Let's stand together. as.